Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to go through the news, uh, Investment Trust news this week. But we'll kick off as normal by having a quick uh, word about the market. Uh, We're recording this slightly earlier than usual, so we don't have the final closing prices. But uh, tell us what sort of week it's been, Simon. Well, it's been a more difficult week, to be honest. I mean, the the sector, the investment company sector will end in negative territory. Probably it looks around about 2% down or so. And that will represent a little bit of an underperformance for the wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share Index. In terms of the sector average discount, well, that's widened out this week, uh, probably started about 3, 3.3%, and it kind of veered out as uh, wider than 4% towards the end of the week. So we're seeing a little bit of discount volatility, a little bit of uh, discounts widen out across the piece. Though despite that, it appears to be a, certainly a better week for growth investors in general. Um, the markets has uh, scrutinised the Federal Reserve guidance that came out uh, in the middle of the week, uh, which had an impact on bond yields, certainly. Uh, And the guidance that the US Federal Reserve gave us that there were going to be no interest rate rises until 2023, uh, at which stage they project two increases. So again, it's all coming back to this question, is inflation transitory? You know, will it burn itself out? And in fact, is the reflation trade unwinding? That seems to be a question that the market is asking this week. But it's uh, certainly true to say that volumes are lower. I think last week we talked about the summer lull. That certainly seems to be a, a feature. Um, and it doesn't seem to be take too much to, to uh, move markets around a bit, to give a little bit of volatility in the mix. Yes, it's certainly been the case that uh, whatever the Fed says is always given a lot of scrutiny, but uh, more so than ever at the moment because of this sensitivity about inflation rate uh, and the future of bond yields. And there's been a lot of uh, kind of forensic analysis of the wording that was used by uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, and and what he was saying about the committee. I mean, as some people have pointed out, I think he did concede that they're now saying that they are reached the stage of talking about, talking about increasing or uh, tapering their buying of bonds and uh, the possibility of, a, of an increase in interest rates down the line. And some more members of the committee, uh, the relevant committee, are now think there might be an increase in 2023 than there were before. But that's somewhere away and who knows what will happen by then. But it's certainly a big factor for the markets, as you say. And I think the US market, I read the Wall Street Journal, could be heading for its worst week since January. Well, it is a soft summer lull as well. So we don't know for certain what it all means, but uh, we will press on regardless. Let's kick off with some uh, news about fundraising. And let's start off with Augmentum Fintech. That's uh, A-U-G-M. This is an interesting fintech trust that invests in uh, companies in this exciting new technological space in the finance sector. What have they been able to do? So they announced plans this week for a proposed placing of new shares targeting £40 million through initial placing, open offer, offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. And that's for 29.6 million shares at an issue price of 135 spot 5p. And that represents a premium just short of 4% to the fund's NAV and a 6% discount or so to the closing price uh, just prior to the announcement. Obviously, they will require shareholder approval for that, and there will be a general meeting on that very subject on the 8th of July uh, with the idea that the the placing closes the same day. The trading in the new shares is expected to begin on the 13th of July. But uh, Augmentum have identified a pipeline of uh, what they describe as active developments, uh, which total £194 million. And in fact, they're talking about a wider pipeline of uh, a billion pounds uh, that have been identified. So, um, yeah, an interesting development for Augmentum. They've, they have enjoyed a good year so far. They last raised money, uh, a substantial amount of money anyway, in November last year, when they issued new shares at 120p per share, which was oversubscribed. And uh, it was £28 million in total they raised back in November. If they get their forty million, what does that mean in terms of the size of the company? You know, what, what percentage of the of the assets or the market value would that represent? Yeah, so they've probably got assets around about two hundred million or so at the moment. So let's call it twenty percent, broadly speaking. 
Okay. And uh, they've also put out some results, so we at least have some uh, more of a clue as to how they've been doing uh, and what they've been doing. What did they have to say about that? Yep. So they had their final results out for the year ended 31st of March 2021, obviously, uh, in which time their NAV was up just over 12% to 130 spot 4p. In share price terms, an incredible return, really. So the NAV up 12%. The share price was up 150%. And again, um, on the subject that we were talking about last week, it obviously depends very much on the period that you look at because Augmentum got hit very hard back in March last year. So it was trading on a substantial discount, certainly on the 1st of April last year when, when this period started. So a spectacular share price recovery. In terms of that NAV performance, though, the strong performers in the portfolio, and it's a quite a concentrated portfolio, but the names that work very well for them include Tide, Farewell, Interactive Investor, which I'm sure people have heard of, and a company called Grover. Uh, and they deployed some new capital. Two new companies joined the portfolio, Paraffin and Vault, uh, and they made additional investments in 11 existing portfolio companies. But yes, it is that they're placing it's this idea that they're trying to grow their assets in order to widen out the portfolio and bring in new investments. And also one of the things they're looking to do is uh, create what they're calling a, a scout program. And what they want to do is seed stage businesses. And this is the idea that they they make investments of less than £100,000 per investment uh, into the companies and, and just develop a, a kind of bank of very early stage companies. And they also want to lower the amount of cash that they're allowed to hold on the balance sheet as well. So um, previously they wanted to hold up to about 20% in cash. And I think they want to bring that down in order to get more of their capital to work. And again, shareholders would get a chance to vote on that on the 8th of July. I, mean, I remember a year ago, they were still quite new to the market and still relatively small as a company and no one quite knew what their assets were worth. So I think that helps to explain why, as you say, the, the share price took a really big dive during the market sell-off uh, a year ago. But they've come back strongly and presumably the longer they endure, the more mature they become the less uh, likely they are, I guess, to suffer a repeat of that kind of experience, you'd imagine, as investors get more comfortable with them. And certainly if they carry on uh, raising money at this rate, they'll have more support in the market, I'm sure. The shares have been trading at a, at a premium, obviously. They've been doing this uh, placing. So uh, how long has that been the case? Yeah, so they're, they're trading probably on about a 5% premium or so at the moment. Uh, in fact, the premium was more than that before the announcement of the placing. Um, over the last 12 months, they've averaged a premium of 12%. Uh, but within that time, there's been a, a, you know some volatility. So it has been out of discount. Obviously, it's recovered from that big discount that we saw back in March last year. But it's also been up to a premium of um, probably 30 36% at one stage. So because essentially it's an unquoted portfolio, there is an idea here that the share price moves ahead. It's a kind of expectation share price. Uh, and so when you have a holding that looks like there may be a liquidity event or there's a funding round that's going to see it repriced upwards, then the share price will kind of move in anticipation of that. OK, so we'll move on now. Let's talk next about uh, Polar Capital Global Financials. We know they were looking to raise some money and they've had a kind of comeback very strongly also over the same period. They had a tender offer, what, a, a year ago or so, uh, in which they lost a lot of assets, but they've come back and they've basically replaced that, have they not? They have indeed. <laughs> They've done very well, actually. So this was a C-share issue, uh, and they announced this week that they raised £122 million. So they were targeting 100 so they came well past that. And again, you know, to your point, back in May last year, uh, they tendered 39% of the share capital, which actually saw the, the fund shrink down to about £130 million in assets. So um, it's already recovered quite a lot since then. So even ahead of this C-share issue, their market cap is just under 300 million. So we've already seen quite a, a substantial recovery. Um, and that's from um, the actual performance of the shares. Um, but in addition to that, they have issued new shares ahead of this C-share. So it's a very good turnaround story. It just shows when an asset class comes back into favour, um, then you can see strong demand and strong performance from it. I mean, they do have some investments in fintech as well, do they not? I think the kind of fringes of their portfolio. But essentially, it's about it's about banks and it's about insurance companies in the main. And they've both benefited from the kind of cyclical rally we've seen uh, certainly since the end of last year. So they're, they're certainly in the right place at the moment anyway. And so they've done well with that round fundraising, as you say. Uh, well, let's move on to um, a company we know well. This is Hypnosis Songs Fund. Song, S-O-N-G, well, you can't keep a good man down for long, can you? I mean, they had uh, a disappointing placing early in this year, but they're, they're, they're coming back for more. 
They are indeed, yes. They're looking to raise £150 million by way of a, a placing, again, just short of 124 million shares uh, at a price of 121p per share. And that issue price represents a small discount, about 2.4% to the closing price just ahead of the announcement they're looking to raise money and a 2% premium to what they call their adjusted operative NAV, so effectively their NAV. And the proceeds will be used to acquire an identified pipeline and the placing will close on the 6th of July. But uh, one of the interesting elements of this is not the first time that Hypnosis has come back to the market and tried to raise additional capital. But they've said that subsequent to the placing, there is no intention to offer further shares for cash consideration until after the publication of the NAV per share as at the 31st of March 2022. In other words, this is it, if not for a year, certainly the best part of a year, which is an interesting development. And one wonders if there's a little bit of feedback has come their way from shareholders along the lines of don't keep coming back to the market every month or every other month. Let the portfolio work for a while. So, you know, to your point, they raised £75 million back in February this year, again at 121p. Uh, and they came back in May and raised just £11 million, and that was at 119 spot 5p. So it'll be very, very interesting to see how this one goes for them. I can't really recall an experience quite like this where you have a stop-start, stop-start like this, but the founders and directors of Hypnosis are certainly not short of confidence that they're onto a good thing, and they've obviously done extraordinarily well. I mean, they've issued an extraordinary amount of capital in a very short period of time, and I think... As Merck Mercuriadis, the founder, said, he's, uh, you know, the portfolio is worth, he puts it in uh, $2.2 billion. I mean, that's, uh, that's a big portfolio of, uh, of assets, but there's still some, some proof in the pudding to be done. I think that's right. It's, it's still relatively early stage for, for this company, but clearly the growth has been spectacular. So as of today, it's got a market cap of, uh, in sterling terms, I'm going to look at it in sterling terms of $1.3 So from a standing start, it's already grown to quite a substantial company. But you know, as I say, the, the, the fact that they've said this is it now for a year uh, in terms of a kind of cash placing anyway, um, I think is an interesting development. I think they are listening to shareholders, perhaps. Yeah. Well, that's bad news for us, of course. Obviously, that will give us less to talk about. But I dare say that if they get this money, they'll be buying lots of catalogues and we can talk about uh, other artists, uh, well-known and obscure as well, that uh, that's occasionally Simon and I haven't heard of. But that's our problem, not theirs, obviously. Uh, let's move on then and talk about another interesting development. This is a first for the investment trust sector, I think. And this is uh, Seraphim Space Investment Trust. Not content with staying on this planet, we're going into space. What is, what is this one about, uh, Simon? Well, this is a very interesting one, actually. So Seraphim Space Investment Trust, uh, intention to float. I'm sure there's some puns that we could come up with around that. It's not entirely clear how much money uh, they wish to raise. That hasn't been stipulated and there is no timetable as far as I could see around it. But they're looking to invest in a diversified international portfolio of early and growth stage space tech businesses. Uh, and they're going to target an annualised NAV total return of at least... 20% over the long term. And that's actually quite a heavy target return, um, certainly by ordinary standards, but they're clearly confident they can do it. Uh, the manager will be an outfit called Seraphin Space Brackets Manager, LLP. And they've been involved in investing in the sector since 2016. So this fund uh, will acquire a portfolio of 19 seed assets for cash with the proceeds reinvested in the fund. And actually 15 of these assets, which are valued at £26 million at the moment, that will be acquired at the time of the IPO with the remaining four, which are valued at £70 million, to be acquired uh, on or before the end of this year. And apparently with those four, there's kind of ongoing corporate activity. So the valuation is obviously a bit more in question. But it's um, when people think, what on earth does space technologies actually means well the, the the definition they've come up with is those businesses that rely on space-based connectivity or precision navigation and timing signals or whose technology or services are already addressing originally derived from or of potential benefit to the space sector so um the, the companies such as spire global a provider of satellite-based global weather forecasting ast and space a space-based cellular broadband network aim to provide global 4G connectivity. And actually, the, the announcement, the intention to float, does give some very interesting colour for those people who are interested in this area about the whole kind of space market. And essentially, it's a lot to do with um, satellites and the huge growth that we're seeing in the launch of, of new satellites. 
Well, it's another good subject for you to get your teeth into, Simon. And for analysts around the city, they've got to broaden their horizons a little bit, or considerably in this case, and learn some new some new tricks. Well, what do you think about this? I mean, the company's been investing here since all of, what, uh, five years ago. Should we approach this with a degree of scepticism, or should we just be broad-minded and say this is not a symptom of current uh, market conditions, but, you know, a serious new investment trust in the making? Well, I think it's certainly interesting. I think anyone could agree on that. And, and actually, one of the discussions that we had at uh, on the research desk when this popped up is, where would we categorise this? Where does it fit into uh, the universe of investment trusts? And I think we kind of thought it was a specialist infrastructure play. And we've talked in recent weeks about uh, digital infrastructure and this idea of how that um, the asset class, that particular asset class, has, has kind of gone into more specialist areas as time has gone by and people have got more familiar with it. Now, this clearly is will have a different return profile. I don't think it's going to be like most of the other infrastructure plays that have a, an income element to it. It's very much kind of venture capital driven as far as we can make out. And one suspects it's going to be for more institutional investors, so more multi-asset type players rather than be a natural home uh, with retail investors. But I think ultimately, uh, investment trust companies, it's a structure that provides access to some very interesting asset classes. We've already talked about hypnosis and, you know, music publishing. And really, you can put anything into the close-ended fund structure uh, as long as there's demand for it on the other side. And uh, it'd be very interesting to see in this particular instance what the demand is. Well, I had a quick look at the website of Seraphim. And I I mean, I wonder if before we've had a, a fund manager who came along with this particular statement of their mission, which is, uh, we're backing the fearless ones, the rule breakers, the mavericks. These are the pioneering entrepreneurs we seek out. We discover and invest in game changers who are pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved and reshaping our world for the future. I mean, that's quite a statement. And, uh, well, let's hope they're right and see if they are and let's see if anybody is prepared to go with them deeply into to boldly go where no one's gone before. Though, of course, it's fair to say that uh, Elon Musk and others have put this uh, kind of whole space business on the map, haven't they? And, and Branson and so. So uh, I'm sure there's something in it. We will find out, in any case, whether it uh, it gets to raise any money. OK, so there's a little short note about uh, Ashoka India Equity, AIE. Uh, and they've raised, well, a little bit of money, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, a relatively modest amount. They raised 4.6 million. Um, a few weeks ago, they announced an ongoing placing program of up to 125 million shares. Uh, they're looking to issue NAV plus 2%. So this is the kind of the first stab at it as far as they're concerned. They issued a short of 2.9 million shares, raising that 4.6 million. And those shares began trading at the end of the week on the 18th of June. So as the name would suggest, uh, this fund invests in equities in India and it trades on a premium in contrast to its two immediate peers. And it has performed very strongly. So the fact that it can issue shares, I'm sure, is uh, is taken to its credit but perhaps they might have expected uh, maybe a little bit more money than that on that initial placing. Right, but presumably they can come back and try again in uh, in due course if there is demand out there, as they hope. So, so much for fundraising. Well, it's certainly been a rich and mixed bag this week. Let's move on and talk about some results now. And let's kick off with uh, Linsell Train Investment Trust, LTI. They've had their final results for the year ended 31st of March, as we've said many times. A very interesting year to be <laughs> investing and to have that particular year end. So uh, what's the story from Linsell Train? Yeah, so in those final results for the year to the 31st of March, their NAV total return was up 29%. That compared with a rise of 4% for the fund's benchmark and 38.4% for the MSCI World Index. In share price terms, they did a little bit better. Their total return was up 38.9%. And in fact, they generated a performance fee in the period Although actually, in fairness, the fee was halved. Um, £2.7 million was paid, and that's after 50% of the performance fee was waived. The total dividend was up 12% in the year to £50 per share. And it's worth noting, actually, Linsell Train Investment Trust does have quite a heavy share price. So I'm just looking on my screen. I can't even begin to work that out. Is that about £142 per share? It might be a bit less than that, but it certainly has quite a heavy share price compared with most investment trust companies, just to put that £50 per share in perspective. But it's worth noting with this particular investment trust that it has a stake in Linsell Train Limited. And Linsell Train Limited uh, is the investment management company run by Nick Train and Mike Linsell. 
And this investment trust has a 24% stake in that business. And that was valued at £114 million. And that represents 48% of Linzel Train Investment Trust NAV. So quite a significant investment. Now, that was up just short of 41% in the period. And that was a reflection of the fact that Linzel Train Limited saw a 26% increase in its funds under management during the year to just short of £23 billion. So in addition to that stake, it has a quoted portfolio of 14 holdings. And they performed less spectacularly, just short of 19% in the year. Uh, and it's names that, uh, if people are familiar with uh, what Nick Train does, and quite similar to the names you'll see in Finsbury Growth and Income. So AG Bard, Diageo, Heineken, Unilever, names like uh, Nintendo, PayPal, Pearson, and London Stock Exchange. So some really interesting commentary around this investment trust. There are really two things stood out. One from the chairman just talking about the succession plan uh, at Linzel Train Limited and how that was obviously quite an important consideration given that uh, significant holding they have in the business. Uh, and the second really interesting part of the results was um, the managers, so Nick Train and Mike Linzel, about how they've performed because the last nine months or so have been difficult for the managers. You can see that through the performance of Finsbury Growth and Income. Uh, and there's some good commentary about why that had been the case and why they were confident that they were um, still going down the right route in terms of uh, the kind of three strategic ideas that they backed being technology and brands and wealth managers and why they believed that was the right course to stay on. Yes, it's always an interesting one, Linsel Train, partly because of this uh, significant stake in the management company. And they made the point in the results that um, the management company has, uh, well, it uh, hasn't done as well as it has done in the past because the Linsel Train funds are not done as well as it has in the past. And they therefore, you know, they don't know exactly what impact that's going to have. Though I notice with interest, they say that uh, some of their investors who are familiar with this kind of boom and bust in style that goes on, which have an imp direct impact on the value of the fund management company, will be looking to this as saying this is maybe an opportunity. And uh, we are at least reassured that for however long this relative underperformance lasts, Linsel Train Limited, the management company, will stick to the strategy that's delivered so much value of the company over so many years. We all know it's a very highly competitive business. So it is interesting. It does introduce uh, an element of volatility into the share price. But just tell us about the premium. I mean, the history of the premium and where it is now, on your calculations at least, uh, they had a formula for valuing the stake in the business. And uh, they have been looking at every aspect of this business, the, the board. They've been very busy. But tell us what you know about the premium and, and, and how you look at it and uh, what it actually stands at now on your calculation. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an important point. And just on the share price, it is a very heavy share price. So I've got it down on, on my screen at the moment at £1,445. So that's uh, not an insubstantial share price per share. I've got them on an 18% premium to date. And just to put that in perspective, over the previous 12 months, they've averaged 17% premium, but it has kind of ranged from around NAV up to about 29% premium. So uh, it has historically and, and quite often traded on a premium. In fact, the board, the chairman uh, and the managers have made it clear that shareholders should be just wary of paying, paying up sometimes quite significant levels of premium in order to buy shares uh, in this investment trust. Funnily enough, this investment trust has not looked to issue new shares, uh, which you would ordinarily expect to see an investment trust do. And one of the reasons why that might be the case is because I think there's a wish not to dilute the share in Linsel Train Limited down uh, because obviously I don't think it would be particularly easier to buy additional shares in that particular company. So rather than issue new shares to the shareholders in Linsel Train Investment Trust and see a dilution of that stake, um, they've been quite happy or maybe uh, lesser of two evils of let the premium rise. But uh, yes, it does trade on a big premium and you will get some volatility around that. Well, one other point there, I think, actually, but they have also changed their benchmark, have they not? In the past, they've been one of these trusts that actually has a dual benchmark in the sense that they look at two different performance measures uh, alongside each other. Uh, there are one or two others that do the same sort of thing. And in their case, they've been looking at uh, basically essentially a cash return and the world market index. Uh, but they're now going to change that to a purely equity market uh, benchmark, I think. Why are they doing that, do you say? Yeah, I know that's correct. So I think that moving to the MSCI World Index, which does have a direct relevance to their performance fee arrangements. Um, I think um, the chairman discussed this in the report and accounts. 
basically just making the point that they recognise that because of the holding in uh, Linsal Train Limited, which obviously potentially you're getting um, beta, you're getting market volatility in there, in addition to which you've got this equity portfolio. So it seemed appropriate to measure performance against an equity-based benchmark, particularly when it came to uh, assessing the, the performance fee. And to be fair, Linsal Train Investment Trust sits within the global subsector. So you, you wouldn't necessarily call it a mainstream Global Investment Trust, it is quite specialist or very specialist given that massive stake in an investment management uh, company, but it seems more appropriate to go, go down the equity index route in terms of comparing its performance. Okay, so let's move on to another trust which uh, can certainly be uh, measured on a very similar index at least, and that is Monks. This is the Bailey Gifford Global Investment Trust, not to be confused with Scottish Mortgage, but uh, not entirely unrelated to it, uh, managed by the same firm. They've had their annual results out as well. And uh, what can we say about that? So they had annual results out for the year to the 30th of April, uh, in which time their NAV total return was up 55.5%. And that compared with a rise of 33.9% for the FTSE World Index. In share price terms, they did uh, nearly as well, up 53.1%, but still a significant outperformance over the benchmark. This one has traded uh, at a premium for much of that period. That's allowed them to issue new shares. So just over 13 million shares were issued, uh, raising 168 million. The dividend has been reduced on this one. It, uh, it stood at 2.5p for their previous financial year. It's now come down to 2p. Though I think it's fair to say Monks is not necessarily an investment trust that you would invest in if you were just purely looking for income. It has a very competitive ongoing charge of just 0.43%, and that's actually come down from the previous year. But it's interesting what's going on at the portfolio level on this one. The level of gearing has come down to below 1% or something at the end of April um, as profits have been taken. And there's definitely been a bit of a rotation. They talk about exposure to more cyclical growth companies being reduced, uh, increased exposure to what they deemed to be rapid growth companies. And actually, if you look at the detail in the investment managers report, companies such as Alibaba, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla and Visa have all been reduced with that money being recycled into uh, digital companies and healthcare stocks. So we've seen a, a changing of the guard on this one. Charles Plowden, who'd been the lead manager since March 2015, he actually retired this year. He retired at the end of April. Uh, and Spencer Adair, who'd been the deputy manager on this one for some time, I think for about five or six years, he has taken over as the lead manager, the investment manager, and Malcolm McCall remains as the deputy. So there's continuity there. But yes, you're right, it is a stable mate of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, part of the Bailey Gifford uh, stable, but quite different from Scottish Mortgage, in, in certainly in terms of how the portfolio has been constructed and, and probably uh, the rationale of the investment approach as well. And within the overall uh, sector, the global sector that we look at, how does its uh, performance compare to others that might be comparable to it, not just Scottish Mortgage, which, as you say, is a rather different animal? There is some overlap. How does it compare to others in the sector? What's its uh, performance been like over the longer term? So over the last five years, on an NAV total return basis, Monks is up about 190% or so. Just to mention Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, that's up 427%, which is obviously significantly ahead. But if you look at some of the, the more comparable portfolios, so again, investment managers that have a growth investment approach, so I'd probably include Midwind International, that's up 131%, or Martin Curry Global Portfolio, maybe up 135%. So Monks finds itself some way ahead of those names. Uh, and it will be um, some way ahead of the kind of more general global players that we've mentioned and we've talked about before, such as Witten and FNC uh, and names of that ilk. So I think one of the points that they make in the announcement is that they adopted a new uh, strategy about six years ago, I think associated with Charles Plowden and, uh, and his colleagues. And one has to say that's been uh, pretty successful to, compared to what went before. So uh, interesting to see now that uh, Charles Plowden has retired, as you say, whether the team can keep that record going, going forward. Uh, let's move on and talk about something which I don't think we've ever mentioned before, which is a trust called Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust. What do they have to say? They produce an annual report. Who are they and what uh, what do they have to say? So Momentum Multi-Asset Value Trust, it wasn't until relatively recently called the Seneca Global Income and Growth uh, Investment Trust, but they had uh, annual results out 
for the year to the end of April. And a strong set of results, really. The NAV total return was up just short of 48% in that year. And that compared with a rise of 7.5% for the Investment Trust benchmark, and and that's CPI plus 6% per annum. In share price terms, their total return was up 48.5%. So the outperformance was a result of the shift towards value, Uh, the rally in UK equities and and also positive stock selection. But it is, uh, as the name would suggest, really, it's a a multi-asset investment trust. So it has 35% allocated to UK equities, 25% overseas equities, 25% in what they call specialist assets and 15% in credit. Uh, And the dividend's an important part of the story. So they maintained their full year dividend at 6.72p per share. That wasn't covered by revenue per share in this particular year. The revenue per share fell from 6.79p in the previous year to 5.48p. So that was down 19%. Um, But they used their revenue reserves to maintain that dividend level. So in terms of size and rating, where does this trust sit? Yeah, so it sits in the flexible investments sector. In terms of size, it's got a market cap at the moment of about £63 million, uh, and the yield on a historic basis is 3.6%. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some UK results now, and let's start with Montanaro UK Smaller Companies, MTU. Montanaro uh, specialises in smaller companies, has a number of funds, both in the UK and Europe and global. Tell us about the UK Trust. How has that performed? Yeah, so the annual results to the end of March, uh, NAV total return just short of 36%. Now that compared with a rise of um, 65.6% for the NSC index, excluding investment companies. Uh, Share price terms a little bit stronger. So share price total return up 50% as the discount narrowed from 11% to 2%. But again, this point about it, it really depends which period that you pick. And from 1st of April last year to the end of March this year, um, obviously the markets did rally quite considerably. The underperformance in NAV terms uh, was attributed to a bias to high quality growth companies. That's what Montanaro, or Charles Montanaro is the manager of this one. That's what they look to do. And there was some discussion in the um, the investment manager's report about how, particularly post-November last year with the the uh, vaccine-inspired rally, how there was a dash for trash and many companies bouncing quite hard. And they're not the companies uh, that Montanari, UK smaller companies, would, would naturally own. So um, this investment trust has a five-yearly continuation vote. The next one's coming up in August. And Charles Montanaro, who's uh, been involved with this investment trust for, for many, many years, though there was a period when uh, he took a, a back seat, but he's become more involved in recent years. He's made a pledge that he will continue to manage the investment trust for a minimum of five more years. So that announcement presumably is not an accident coming as it does just before this uh, continuation vote. I'm sure that's timely information for the uh, investors to know. So uh, you reckon on this uh, performance it's going to be able to continue, right? It would think it's fairly normal to continue after this uh, reasonable track record over time? Yes. I mean, if you look at the rating, it's on a narrower discount than its peers at the moment. So it's probably between about a 4 and 5% discount. It has been re-rated over the last year. As he said, he he looks to invest in quality growth companies. So there are always periods where this investment trust will underperform. Um, And it's not alone in that. There are a number that are kind of set up in the same way. But if you look at the long-term performance numbers, um, so the five-year total return, the fund is up 76%. And for the uh, kind of peer group average, um, it's probably up about 91%. So it's a little bit behind its peers, it's fair to say, over that period. But compared with its benchmark, that's up 65%. So it's ahead of uh, the benchmark that it's trying to beat. So let's move on then and talk about another interesting trust, River and Mercantile UK Microcap. We've had cause to mention them once or twice because they've done very, very well over the very recent past, struggled a bit in the past. But uh, let's talk about them. RMMC, River and Mercantile UK Microcap, interim results. What have they done? Yep. So the interim results to the end of March, the NAV total return was up 39%. Uh, and that compares with a rise for um, the fund's benchmark up 33.5%. In other words, they outperformed. In share price terms, they did even better. Actually, very strong in share price terms, up 64.6%. 
And that was a reflection of the fact the discount narrowed from 23% to 9%. So it's all about the stocks, really, as the name would suggest. It's it's really at the kind of the bottom end of the UK market. So being microcaps and a pretty concentrated portfolio, about 40 holdings or so. Um, so things that work for them were companies such as Max Sight, City Pub Group worked well, UK Consumer Cyclical, Jewels, Revolution Bars Group also worked, although the largest attractor was exposure to uh, gold. So yes, it has been a very strong period in recent times. And as a result of that, this investment trust is unusual um, because it looks to return capital to shareholders after it exceeds a certain size. So it's between about 100 and 110 million pounds. The rationale being that they never want to run too much money in the UK microcap space. They, they believe that that will di- lead to a dilution in returns. And so they have got this mechanism, the capital redemption mechanism, as they call it, uh, when capital is returned. And we've seen that happen twice recently. Back in January, they returned £15 million. And then just back in May, uh, £20 million was returned back to shareholders. And that means now that uh, if you look at their market cap today, it's probably about £107 million or so. So unusually, this investment trust, um, assuming they retain this mechanism, will never grow too much larger than that. Yes, and that's always something that's good to see. It's always uh, easy for shareholders to ask for it, but it's often quite difficult to persuade fund management groups that they should be capping the size of their trusts to keep their potential for performance intact. There are a couple of sort of direct uh, comparators here for R&M's uh, UK microcap trust. And how does it compare with those in terms of performance and rating? It's a good point. So over the five years, five years, uh, NAV total returns, the River Mercantile Fund is the strongest performer, up 193%. That compares with Mighton UK Microcap, which is up 102%. Uh, so some way behind. The other fund uh, in that uh, subsect is the Downing Strategic Microcap, and they don't have a five-year track record at the moment, but certainly over three years, three-year NAV total return, they're up 3%. And again, that compares with the Mighton Fund up 49% or River Mercantile up 56%. So Downing uh, certainly has been the laggard over that three-year period. But it comes with a price in terms of volatility, because I think it hit a hit a high back in, what, 2018, and then the share price performed pretty poorly after that for a period, and then it's come storming back again. So you have to put up with a bit of volatility to get the benefit, full benefit of, the, of this one. Let's move on and talk about another smaller company's trust, but this one has got a different geographic focus. This is JP Morgan European Smaller Companies, JESC. They have a very successful uh, UK Smaller Companies uh, Trust, but how has the European one been doing? Yeah, and it's probably worth saying, actually, it's no longer called J.P. Morgan European Smaller Companies. And when they announced their results a few days ago, that was its name. It's actually subsequently changed. They now are called the J.P. Morgan European Discovery Trust and has a ticker of J.E.D.T. Get used to that one. So uh, they had annual results out to the end of March, in which time their NEV total return was up 66.2%. And that compared with a rise of 57.9% for the benchmark. The discount actually tightened as well during that period. It moved from 23% to 13%. A number of holdings did well for it, as you would expect. Solaria, ASM International, whereas they had a number of detractors as well. And the gearing was uh, quite dynamic in that period. It ranged between 3% and 9%. Uh, Francesco Conti has been the manager of this one since 1998, supported by Edward Greaves over the last five years. But really, they're kind of focused on the long-term themes of technological disruption, environmental protection, and wellness. And despite that strong performance record, or certainly on on that period to the end of March, the management fee has been reduced to 85 basis points, or 0.85% per annum of the NAV at the start of the period. Right. Well, let's move on then, compare that to the uh, performance of another Montanaro Trust, which is the Montanaro European Smaller Companies Trust. I hope they haven't changed their name as well. <laughs> it's MTE. Do these things to catch us out or do these catch me out? <laughs> How has their performance been uh, in comparison? Well, they had uh, exactly the same reporting period. So annual results to the end of March. Their NAV total return was up 67 2%. And that compared with a rise of 57.9% for the MSCI Europe X UK small cap index. Uh, so yet again, they had a number of things that worked well for them, including holdings such as Fort Knox, uh, Avanza and MIPS. But the share price terms, they, they did very well, actually. The share price total return was up 84.2%. 
as the shares moved from uh, an 8% discount to a 1% premium. And that allowed the investment trust to issue new shares or actually shares from Treasury, uh, but at a premium to the NAV. But the fund has performed well in recent times. George Cook's uh, been responsible for this one since um, the start of 2012. Um, a relatively concentrated portfolio in the small cap terms, 55 companies, and quite a heavy weighting to technology. So 33% in IT uh, and 19% in healthcare as well. So two big exposures there. But again, you know, the management fee has been chiseled down, uh, tiering introduced to the management fee, which takes effect from the 1st of April. So if we compare those last two, JP Morgan European Discovery Trust, as I must now call it, and Montanaro European Smaller Companies, the JP Morgan Trust did 1% worse than the Montanaro European Smaller Companies in NAV total return times. But one of them trades on a discount. The other one, as you said, is pretty close to par. So what's the explanation for that? It's a good point. I think probably in the case of the Montanaro Fund, it has a stronger long-term performance record. So if we look at five-year NAV total return performance, Montanaro European Smaller Companies is up 198% over that period, while the JP Morgan one is up 103%. There are also two other funds in the sector it's worth noting. So European Assets, uh, which is part of the BMO group, they're up 93% over that same period. And TR European Growth as well, which is part of the Janus Henderson stable, that fund is up 157%. So quite a, a difference in where the numbers are coming out. I would suggest that probably reflects the different investment approaches that the respective managers have. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about some specialist uh, trust results and we can kick off with uh, Next Energy Solar Fund, NESF, which is, as its name suggests, in the solar business. What have they had to say? So Next Energy Solar Fund had its annual results out to the end of March. In that time, the NAV fell very, very slightly from 99p to 98.9p. But in NAV total return terms, it was up 7%. And obviously, that reflects the dividends that it paid. In share price total return terms, it was up 5.1%. Um, and they declared dividends of 7.05p through the year, which was an increase on the previous financial year when they paid 6.87p. So the cash dividend cover of those dividends was one1 times, uh, which is important. And in fact, they've increased their dividend target for their next financial year or the financial year to 2022. Um, they've increased that in line with RPI uh, to 7.16p. But what kind of worked for them in the period? Well, again, it's a kind of familiar story with all these renewable energy infrastructure plays. Long-term power forecasts were down, so that kind of nudged the NAV down, as did revisions in the short-term inflation forecast and increased corporation tax, which we talked about on a number of occasions. But on the positive side, uh, electricity generation was 6.2% above budget. Perhaps it was that kind of a decent summer that we enjoyed last year. Uh, solar irradiation, 5.5% above expectation. But it's worth noting when the revenue of these funds, where they actually come from. So 66% of the revenues came from government subsidies, whereas 34% came from electricity sales. But again, probably a decent set of results, particularly in terms of where they are with their dividends. So I think they have the distinction, if that's the word, of being one of the less well-rated uh, trusts in the renewable energy sector. I think I've got that right. And where are they in terms of funding and so on? We know that all the renewable energy trusts have been, in one way or another, looking to raise more money. Where are they in that cycle? And um, how does their rating compare to others? You, you get a higher dividend yield as a result, of course, but uh, what's the story there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So they're, they're trading probably on a premium rating of about 1% or so. And in that renewable energy infrastructure subsector, probably the average premium rating at the moment is more like 10%. So their yield, uh, again, you're absolutely spot on, their yield on a historic basis is 7.2%. Uh, and that compares with a weighted average yield for the peer group of 5.2%. So you're definitely getting a, a pickup uh, in terms of the yield. In terms of their fundraising plans, I can't tell you off the top of my head the last time they raised capital from the marketplace. I'd have to go and rummage into some files to find that out. But um, as far as I'm aware, they're not one that they're currently trying to raise additional capital. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about Syncona, S-Y-N-C. This is a fascinating uh, trust, which has evolved in a particular way. I'm sure you can remind us what that is, Simon, when we talk about it. But they've had some results out. They are involved in healthcare and biotech and all those exciting areas. 
Uh, perhaps you can just tell us, first of all, who they are, remind us who they are, and then um, a quick summary of what they've uh, had to say. Yeah, sure. So Synchrona was originally back it when it was launched uh, a number of years ago, and they um, had a relationship with the Wellcome Trust right from the start. A few years ago now, uh, effectively a portfolio of life sciences company from the Wellcome Trust was kind of rolled into Synchrona and the investment objective was changed. So now the team here are looking to build life science companies, so kind of biotech companies effectively. But it's very interesting. It's distinct from what we see elsewhere, where some investment trusts or houses will get involved in, in funding rounds for biotech companies. Synchrona kind of go that extra mile, really. They're looking to kind of identify, found, build, and then obviously fund these companies from a really, really early stage. So they back uh, academics and management teams and um, it is quite a different approach. So development this week is that we had the annual results uh, for Syncona to the end of March this year, in which time their NAV total return was up 4.4%. Um, the life science portfolio that I've just described, and that um, I think there are about 11 companies in that at the moment, that was up on a total return basis just short of 12%, and it was valued at £722 million of the fund's £1.3 billion uh, of net assets. They deployed capital of 189 million, uh, founding two new companies in the period, companies called Resolution and Pure Spring, uh, and they added a company called Neogene to the portfolio as well. But it is a very interesting story. How can you describe this? It's probably more sophisticated, uh, the kind of mo more moving parts to this than you would expect in a normal investment trust portfolio. And there's been a bit of a changing of the guard as well. So the, the CFO has retired, has been replaced, and the investment manager has expanded uh, with a chap called Marcus John joining as the chief medical officer. But um, very, very interesting what they're trying to do in that end of the, the marketplace. Indeed it is. And presumably, Stinkona, like most of the other uh, life science companies, you're not buying it for a dividend. But um, what kind of price would you have to pay in order to buy some shares in this one? And how does that compare with some other of the alternatives? Yeah, so they're, they're trading on about a 4% premium at the moment. And uh, we categorise them, as I suspect most people do, in the kind of biotech and healthcare subsector. And there's quite a range of different companies in that space. So I think in recent times, we've talked about companies such as Worldwide Healthcare, Biotech Growth, Polar Capital Global Healthcare is also in that area. But we've also mentioned, I think, once or twice about RTW Venture, which is a, a US-based investment team. Uh, and they are certainly, if not kind of founding and building companies, but they're certainly backing quite early stage uh, biotech companies as well. So it's a really interesting asset class. I mean, uh, Syncona has quite a concentrated portfolio in terms of these life sciences companies, just 11 or so, albeit they have um, quite substantial amounts of dry powder. So I think in the results, they talk about the capital available of 578 million. And that's an important part of this story. They want to be able to provide additional capital to grow these businesses and also to identify, they look to identify two new investments every year. So there's always a significant element of cash or if not cash, uh, you know, available capital for them to deploy. So it is quite different from, from the other funds in that space. Okay, so we'll move on now and finally talk about one of the property investment trusts. Anyway, we don't do all the results. Let's talk about Custodian REIT, C-R-E-I. They've had their final results for the period of the 31st of March. And uh, have they had anything different to say from what most of the others had to say? Well, there's a few common themes for sure. In that year, their NAV per share was down about 4% or so. But in NAV total return terms, they were in positive territory, albeit by about 1%. Obviously, the dividends helping them move into the positive area. The property portfolio was valued at uh, £552 million at the year end. Um, they benefited from uh, what they called asset management initiatives. That gave them some valuation uplifts, although they were hit with some decreases and perhaps unsurprisingly, that was uh, in declines in values for high street retail uh, and also negative market sentiment for retail assets in general. They were about 25% geared at the end of March. Uh, and in terms of their rent collection for the financial year, that came in at 91% or 89% before deferrals. And perhaps therefore, unsurprisingly, their EPRA earnings per share was actually down in the period. It moved from 7p to 5.6p. 
Um, and in fact, they declared dividends in respect to the year of 5p. And that also was down from 6.65p, though it was covered clearly, which is obviously positive. And what they've said is that their target dividend per share for the next financial year, financial year to 2022, will not be less than, than 5p. So this is slightly differentiated from some of the others. It, it kind of focuses on smaller lot sizes. I think they, the range that they look for is between two and 10 million pounds per lot. Um, and they have quite a low weighting to London and the South East. And that possibly explains why they're trading on a premium rating. Whereas I think as we discussed before, most UK commercial investment trusts are now trading out on quite significant discounts. Yes, indeed they are. They have come in, but they haven't come in as far as reaching par. That's for certain. OK, so that's all the results and the announcements we have uh, this week. I guess we might just finish by having a, a little kind of speculative think about how the market might go over the next two or three months. You think this summer lull will continue? I mean, traditionally, we do get a, a lull in trading activity, but there's uh, a lot going on. The markets have performed pretty well this year uh, so far, particularly the UK market. So would you be surprised to see... Uh, a little bit of a retraction, or do you think your market will power ahead up from here? What's your gut instinct tell you, sir? It's a very good question. I think probably a question that most people are asking right now, to be honest, across the marketplace. I mean, I, what I think I can tell you is that trading volumes have come down substantially. We, we talked about the summer lull. Trading volumes in the investment company space are probably 25% lower than they have been on average over the previous six months. And it doesn't surprise me too much. We're seeing a little bit of discount volatility as buying demand has got a bit weaker. I mean, in terms of general market direction, I think it's going to be very, very dependent if there's any kind of seismic changes, if something were to happen that's perhaps not expected. So maybe if you know we get some bad inflation data or you know something untoward happens, particularly with the pandemic, you know, it was shown that some of the vaccines weren't working particularly well, and then people had to reassess how that would work out. I mean, I was talking to an investment manager just earlier today and, you know, never feel sorry for an investment manager, clearly. But um, I think it's a really difficult period for them right now. I think at the start of the year, you could have made a good argument for reopening trades or, or reflation. You could have talked about how sectors such as oils and banks might do quite well, or you could talk about maybe the prospects on growth. But I think it's become unclear on a kind of six-month view exactly where the markets are going. So what do investment managers do about that? Well, they probably take a longer term view and kind of stick to what they know. So if they're growth investors, they'll go, well, I'm just going to ignore the noise that we're seeing at the moment, or maybe even lack of noise, and just look through that a little bit and try to project where we are two, three, four years down the line. Whereas for value investors, again, you have to hope that then they have enjoyed a better spell this year, clearly. But you think, well, actually, no, we're just going to stick to what we're going to do. We're going to stick to some of the, the beaten up companies, the more cyclical companies, and back those to kind of keep going. But I think it has become a very difficult period. Yeah, there certainly doesn't seem to be any kind of compelling narrative at the moment, which is often what we talk about in the markets. There's a kind of big theme going around. And last year, we had this sort of cyclical reopening style rotation. This year, at the beginning of the year, there's a lot of worries about inflation. But that you know, has come so far to the forefront that it's now, you could argue, in the price. We have to see what people make of the Fed's latest announcement by reading the runes of their minutes and if that actually signifies anything substantial. But for the moment, we do seem to be drifting along without any kind of clear uh, narrative or sense of direction, which is what happens quite often. We're sort of becalmed, if you like, for the moment, I would say. But there's always things going on beneath the surface, as we know, and we will be looking forward to discussing them next week. So if any of you are interested in uh, the Moneymakers Circle, I should just mention that we are doing something this week in a bit more depth about infrastructure trusts and how to measure them and, and how their ratings relate to each other. Quite a complicated area. And in the meantime, look forward to talking again next week. Simon, thank you for your time, as always. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.